Mystic Chicks. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I hope you aren't getting tired of Terrence McKenna yet, because today we're going to hear the next-to-last section of the uh, CIIS workshop that we've been auditing for the past couple of weeks, or three weeks now, I guess. This is the fourth in the series. But first, I uh, would like to thank two nice saloners who very generously made donations to the salon, and they are Brian W. and Justin T. So, Brian and Justin, uh, hey, thanks again for everything, you guys. And uh, I also want to mention the fact that I really appreciate all of the uh, offers to help around the salon in one way or another. I'm uh, definitely thinking about ways to uh, get our fellow saloners more involved in the discussions and activities here in the salon. But uh, I'm afraid that for the next couple of months, it's mainly going to be uh, just me thinking about it because... At the, uh, at the present moment, I'm working on a couple of speeches that I'll be giving uh, this summer and fall, plus uh, I'm now in the beginning of my Burning Man prep, and uh, you burners know what that means, but uh, hey, stay tuned, or I should say stay subscribed, and uh, I'll be letting you know about some of the plans for uh, integrating uh, some other activities into the salon that uh, may be of interest to you. Now let's get on with uh, today's program, which, as you already know, is the next installment of a workshop that Terrence McKenna gave at CIIS over the weekend of November 5th and 6th, uh, way back over 20 years ago in 1988. So let's pick up where we left off last week when Terrence McKenna was about to answer a question about ayahuasca visions. idea of certain plants or certain substances have certain attributes or certain places that they take people to. I've had the ideation that you're talking about, the, the visualization of the snakes, the cats, the jungle, the the, the um, um, pyramids, the whole you know, Mayan aspect, jungle, the shamanic routine on LSD, on mushrooms, on ibogaine, and on yahe. And I've had clients that had it, had that same mitigation doing breath work. Well, so, yeah, this this so raises a, this where? raises a real question. Uh, one of the things and the black people, <laughs> the, black pe- the black people were on the high game, which I expected, <laughs> but not the but not the other part. Yeah, I don't understand exactly how this works. I will join your side for a moment because there's a phenomenon I've noticed and some of you have heard me talk about it it's possible to do this on psilocybin it's really easy to do it on ayahuasca ayahuasca in a way is somehow more open to suggestion these other things have their own agenda ayahuasca will work with you but one of the bizarre things that you can do on ayahuasca is you can suggest a period like let's say uh, Italian Baroque you just say it in your mind and paintings altarpieces architectural spaces balustrades vehicles armament saddlery 
uh, clothing, uh, uh, serving utensils, bowls, pewter, candelabra, all of the stuff will begin drifting toward, and it's just, and it is high Baroque. In fact, it is, it is more Baroque than the Baroque. It's obviously what they were shooting for, you know? <laughs> and then, and then you just, a hawk-headed guy, and you just, and they say, Art Deco, and thousands of cigarette lighters, uh, coffee tables, uh, yeah, and, uh, and more intensely realized than you ever actually encounter these things in real life. Well, now what does that mean? Uh, I have no idea, first of all. The possibilities seem to be that what we call styles, or what we call motifs, are actually um, categories in the unconscious. But the amazing thing about it is, having looked at the Italian Baroque, dynastic Egypt, and Art Deco, you can also say to it, so surprise me. And suddenly, it can surprise you, a hundred percent. It can show you objects that you cannot place to any set of motifs, any historical period, past, present, or future. And then you can say to it, surprise me again. And it gives you surprise B, which is completely different from surprise A, and also not related to any known style. So then you say, well, are styles categories in the unconscious, and how many of them are there? And, and what does it mean then for a group of people in 1680, or 1930 to suddenly find one of these places and punch into it. And then another question is, is there a, a necessary historical progression or is it by chance? In other words, could the world, could the political world of the 16th century have lived with the design motifs of Art Deco? Could we have had uh, Columbus arriving in America in a ship uh, consonant with the best canons of Bauhaus design? Strange questions, friends. Is there succession, necessary succession in style, or are these things uh, pure chance? So, I don't know, Re returning to and responding to your demonic advocacy, it may be that going to Tikal preconditions you, that that pushes the button and then when you take the psychedelic you discover that the high Mayan, the classic Mayan button had been set and then you find all this stuff. It's a little more bewildering to have it happen uh, in your living room. So My feeling about it is, is that those experiences are available to anybody and, and, and in various states and there are various ways to get there. Uh, and my and, I don't feel that it's mutually exclusive to say that, that that some substances do seem to have a certain predilection for for certain kinds of, of, of experiences. Now, I've had I've had both both feelings about it. That it's that it, that range of experiences, that band of experiences, is available, and some things are more likely to put me there than others. Well, um, LSD is a relative of morning glories. So if you got Mexican imagery off LSD, that would be understandable. It may be that all the indoles resonate together. And, uh, you know, Rupert's fond of saying the morphogenetic uh, or the thing which is most impinging on the present is the immediate 
and most closely related past, but also impinging is the uh, are the related past moments and the related contingencies. Perhaps all of the indoles uh, can access each other. One one thing that I've done. Uh, on psilocybin, and you might try this. This is an interesting experiment. Once you get it up and running smoothly, then you can say to it, be MDMA, and it will be it. And you, and you can say to it, be LSD, and it loves to do imitations of other psychoactive drugs. Well, I don't know. You, I don't think you can say to MDMA, be DMT. And, and it will move. You hope not, don't you? <laughs> and it would move over into that space. But, see, obviously it's some kind of freely commanded modality in the psyche with which we can have a relationship if we will but evolve a control language and a dialogue. And it remains mysterious. It is... It, uh, a point that I made yesterday that I think is worth repeating. The psychedelic experience is the beginning of the spiritual path. That's why it's not important that yogins claim that they can deliver you the psychedelic experience because it begins with the psychedelic experience. And then you go from there. Uh, I said something like this a few weeks ago at the John Ford Theater in L.A. and this guy got up and said, so why don't you take more? Which I think is a very interesting question, very valid for me personally. And the answer is, uh, our whole lives we conceive of spiritual development as looking for the answer. You know, is it Taoism? Is it diet? Is it uh, Tantra? We look for the answer. And I think we have become so accustomed to looking for the answer that it's never really entered our minds what it would be like to find it, to have it, yes. And once you come face to face with these psychedelics, the trail ends that you have found the answer. Not because you're, I mean, perhaps because you're smart, perhaps you're, because you're lucky, perhaps because you deserved it, perhaps because you hang out with the right people. You have found the answer. Now the question is, what the hell do you do with it? Because the answer is going to make hash out of your life because your life is based on living without the answer. <laughs> So suddenly, it's not, you know, I want to be an enlightened being, I want to be a shaman, I want to be a Taoist, I want to be a yogi. Be it. See how you like it. So the answer to the question, why don't, why don't I take more, is because I don't, I'm uh, attached, basically. It is entirely my own attachments that now impede my spiritual growth. Nobody's holding me back. Nothing is holding me back except my uh, sense of the awesomeness of what is now possible. And this is true of everybody who reaches a certain point. 
the, think of the Taoist sage on Cold Mountain who has been up there in the fog and the mist and the rock escarpments for 30, 40, 50 years. And the people in the village occasionally mention him to each other and say, you know, is old Fu Si still alive? Has anyone seen him recently? And someone will say, oh yes, I saw him three years ago across a valley gathering wood, but when I approached, he ran further up the mountain and disappeared. To be Fu Si is entirely possible, you know, to actually attain what we have previously thought of as unattainable spiritual accomplishments. But I don't foresee, I don't think it can happen uh, without leaving everything, you know? Do you really want to be a Taoist hermit circulating the light for 200 years in a cave high up above Timberline? You can, you know, there's nothing stopping you once you understand that this psychedelic vehicle is available. Uh, I'm appalled at that. I mean, it's one thing to change your life to be nicer to your co-workers. It's quite another to change your life to be incomprehensible to 99.9% of all humanity. So, uh, once you have the psychedelic tool in hand, then real choices have to be made. What is this to you? Is it simply um, uh, something that you do once or twice a year to affirm to yourself that it's possible? Or is it something that you can use in some way for your good and the world's? That's sort of where I have come to rest, and I hope it's not a delusion. But I think that there are ideas out there and that they don't do any good out there, that they only have efficacy if brought into three dimensions. And uh, there are all kinds of ideas. In fact, they are all ideas. So we're talking about a more efficient internal combustion engine, how people can learn to love each other, how to save the planet, the most efficient way of packing uh, crackers in a box for long shelf life and low destruction of their structural integrity. It doesn't matter what the problem is. The answer can be found out there. Well, it puts, it puts people who are into this psychedelic thing in an entirely different stance from all other spiritual seekers because all other spiritual seekers are furiously seeking. Psychedelic people are holding it back with all their power because they are, they are in the presence of the mystery. And then the, the trick is to get a spigot on it so that it can be turned on and off rather than just coming at you like a tidal wave a mile high and 20 miles wide. So uh, it's a different problem, an embarrassment of riches an embarrassment of access to past, present, future, alien dimensions, mantra-hoarding elves, and uh, promise-bearing demons. Uh, and, and so, I, it, strangely enough, it, it creates a certain kind of conservatism. Now, I don't think that everybody realizes this. Many people take psychedelics 
in order to prove to themselves that they can and then gain acceptance from their social group. It's a way of fitting in. But those people, you can always evade the mystery. Not always. But if you're, a, if you're trying to from the get-go, you can evade fully confronting the mystery. And, uh, but if it's what you want, you will quickly discover that you, know, you have hit the main vein and that changes the rules of the, of the game pretty entirely. They'll do it up to a point, and then it's particularly sophisticated uh, psychologists and, and, and uh, people like that that, that, that uh, uh, say, well, it'll, 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 it'll take you so far, but then there's something else, and you have to quit doing this and give it up and, and do something else. And my, you know, my experience is with that is it's not true. That if you want to keep doing it, it'll take you as far as you want to go. That's what I think. I think people who, who quit doing it see something detect because what it is is if you think of the self as a diamond and you begin to and and then what the psychedelic is is pressure on the diamond well you can raise the pressure to a thousand pounds per square inch and there are no structural flaws but if you raise the pressure to ten thousand pounds per square inch micro flaws begin to show and shear lines appear and because everything will fly apart at a certain level you one cannot encompass this mystery i mean i think finally you have to avert your eyes and just you know adore is a strange word and worship is also a strange word but certainly um give credit it is not a program that you finish. And yes, people who say, I learned all I could from it, probably learned mostly that they shouldn't do more of it. It threatens to put them out of a job, especially if like they're psychotherapists. <laughs> well, it threatens to put anybody out of a job because eventually the contradictions of living in this low-level slice of reality will just become unbearable. And you, I mean, this actually happened in the 60s. I mean, many people quit and dropped out for many reasons, but the seed of all that talk about is you just say, you know, this is absurd. I am going to sit. That's not absurd. But, you know, what about your stock brokerage? What about your portfolio? What about your divorce in progress? So all of this, you know, you can't... Uh, no, I think that the depth of this cannot be taken. And eventually, the male ego in every single one of us, regardless of our gender, will uh, feel threatened because it's hardly different from death, you know, because uh, you're not going to recognize yourself. That's the point that I wanted to make in talking about the guy up on Cold Mountain. You know, once he ran a gas station, once he followed the Dodgers, but then it all began to slide in this certain direction, and he is no longer recognizable to himself. Uh, Carlos Castaneda has Don Juan say you must lose your personal history well I don't know whether Don Juan is a real person or whether he ever said that but it's interesting that notion how many of us would be willing to become unrecognizable to ourselves 
And yet, obviously, that's the path that one is on. And so then you just decide, well, is there an obligation to go to the end? Do I have to become a genie? Do I have to become a Taoist sage, an immortal? And I think the answer is no. You know, one doesn't have to do that. Uh, Buddhism creates the notion of the bodhisattva. That is, in a way, this same thing. It's where you're just about to go over the hill into incomprehensibility, and then you say, wait a minute, what about the people in the prisons, the naked, the hungry, the oppressed? And you pull back and say, no, I forswear enlightenment until the last being attains enlightenment. Well, it's a noble gesture, but I'll bet these bodhisattvas make this vow with a tremendous sigh of relief. <laughs> now they know what they're going to do with their lives. Oh, good, I'm going to work in prisons and counsel the dying and get into political action. Jeez, for a minute I thought I was going to go straight into the light and, that's, and become unrecognizable to myself and lose my definitions and so forth and so on. Uh, I will. <laughs> the um, comment, the two words that struck me interesting was adore and worship. Uh, I don't know if I got it right. Matthew Fox Friday night said, quoted some theologian, I think it was Chardin. Mm -hmm. And it struck me interesting because he said that we have come to a point in history now where we must either find some form of meaningful worship or commit suicide. And somehow I, my, that quote came back when you mentioned uh, when one may reach that point of the penultimate truth of the unspeakable or the formless form or the light or whatever you want to call it, uh, and the mushrooms are pointing the way or whatever, breath therapy, that all these things are only um, something that points you to the ultimate and when you get there it, it moves into the adoration and the worship level which interestingly enough as I say becoming, coming from a, a mode of being a recovering Catholic uh, I could never find in any kind of religious community and didn't want to join a monastery for that purpose uh, and what I see is partially this neurosis or unhappiness that exists in so many people in the, in the country, they have no contextual format for worship because it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have that power for them to, to do it. Yes, well, you have to have the personal experience of something to worship, and this is what has been lacking. I mean, it, what the churches are peddling is high abstraction, and you really have to work yourself up into a lather to, uh, you know, be able to accept that as as worthy of that kind of attention. The the psychedelic uh, subset of society is into an experience, and you know, it's accessible in a way. We're like Calvinists not in our ethics or our restraint on behavior, but in our insistence on a direct personal relationship with the mystery. And uh, this is something very new. We have really uh, accepted the idea that truth descends through hierarchies, basically from Newsweek and Time and the Washington Post 
down to us as consumers of uh, these various images of what is going on. The notion that you might know more about reality than the combined editorial uh, board of Scientific American and the Journal of Foreign Affairs is uh, startling stuff. We always give ourselves away. We don't realize it only it depends on you, you know, to believe that at Cornell or down at SRI people understand the universe is not helpful. You must understand the universe. And if you don't under, if you don't know uh, partial differential calculus, then your model of how the universe works must do it without partial differential calculus. In other words, it's not writ anywhere that only one model will work. And in fact, I think all abstract models should be highly suspect. It's going to be... It, it's, a, it's an opportunity. I mean, we have to view life as an opportunity. What are you doing with it? Are you afraid of it? I mean, some people live their lives. Apparently, what they are doing is arranging their deathbed scene. They want it to take place in a large baronial house with clipped green lawns, acres in surround. They want uh, the room in which they die to be filled with fine art. They want their loving heirs to be dutifully assembled while they pass out the final wisdom. And they spend their entire life creating the dramatic scenario of their passage. And of course you have to work hard because you've got to make the money to buy that house. You have to uh, sire all these children, educate them into your values so they won't be stabbing you in the back and misbehaving in this situation. Uh, you have to create loyalty, possession, power, all of these things. And then you won't die in a ditch unknown and abandoned, you know. But on the other hand, what was the quality of that life? You know, uh, life is an opportunity. Should we, how much pressure should you put on it? How many places should you go? How many drugs should you take? How many sexual configurations should you experiment with? How many professions should you, uh, uh, and it depends, I think, the question is how seriously do you take it? Do you just think life is a lark and it's fine with you that you're going to go into a pine box and be forgotten for all eternity? Or do you have some inner consolation that that won't happen and you're going to go off and be with uh, Lao Tzu and Mao and everybody else who ever died? Or, you know, just what is it? And my, I think of it as uh, a telephone booth being filled with water. And you can see that when the water reaches the top of the telephone booth, you're going to be dead as a doornail. And so you have 30 years to figure it out. We are alive. There's no contest about that. It's extremely improbable that we should be alive, that we should be here thinking, feeling, sharing. The fact that we're alive throws open the whole game means anything is probably possible. But I doubt that it's easy. I'll bet you have to be very, very smart to figure out what's going on and get it right. And so I guess I have a sort of private religion of intelligence. It isn't how good you are. 
it's how wily you are, which was the Greek virtue of Odysseus, you know, that was always his epitaph or his epithet was uh, he was wily Ulysses reality is some kind of maze it isn't to the swift that the race goes a maze a puzzle garden that you walk through to try and find your way out uh, the race isn't to the swift it's to the thoughtful the careful the one who can tease it all apart well for puzzle solving, the psychedelic is this tremendously powerful tool because it extends the domain of mind and that's what's necessary to make it go. Okay, moving through these things and, and discussing dosage, uh, probably in, in order of the likelihood of your encountering them, uh, mushrooms, I feel that uh, people who weigh around 140 pounds should take five dried grams. This is a stiff hit. This is a committed hit. <laughs> it, it, there will be difficult moments in a five gram trip, but on the other hand, um, you'll, certain questions will be solved forever for you uh, because you will validate the existence of this dimension. You will see what your relationship to it is. Uh, I don't believe in uh, diddling with these things. The, uh, people tend to take tiny amounts thinking that one-tenth of a dose is one-tenth of an experience. Well, that doesn't work like that. I mean, half a dose can be no experience at all. And a full dose can feel like ten of these experiences. So trivializing it is really, uh, and I use this word advisedly, but sinful because you're trivializing the only mystery or one of the... It's like trivializing sex. I mean, the ordinary objections to pornography are not my objections. But uh, to my mind, a very strong objection to pornography is that it trivializes. And anything which trivializes anything central to our self-definition is uh, uh, bad mental hygiene is about the only way I could put it. And taking small doses of psychedelics tends to trivialize them. And there are people uh, who probably take LSD every weekend and go dancing and have done this for years and have no idea what LSD is capable of. The main shift in the use pattern with LSD is from emphasis I mean, it may have been childish, but the style of the 60s was, how many mics can you bolt down, you know? Have you had the 500? Have you had the 1,000? Have you had the 2,000? Well, eventually it becomes moot because you just dissolve into shimmering atoms for longer and longer periods of time on these trips. But the modern approach, which is how little can you get away with taking and still be one of the gang, is e even more insidious, you know, because then people feel capable of talking about these things. And, uh, uh, you know, there are people who feel that their opinions on the psychedelic experience should be weighed very carefully who have only taken MDMA. <laughs> well, listen, I've got news for you. I mean, that is to the domain we're talking about, like a, a broken tricycle to a Tessa Rosa Ferrari. <laughs> so, uh, 
also, this is a general comment that you should take a committed dose of whatever it is you're, you're, you're taking so that there is no ambiguity because there's nothing worse than a sub-threshold psychedelic experience because what it is is it's all show and no go. You know, you feel the CNS activation, you feel the keyboards light up, everything comes on, you start down the runway, you pick up speed, you pick up speed, you pick up speed, <laughs> and then you come to the end of the runway and taxi back to the hangar and, you know, well, that was not a flight to Boston. That was just clogging the traffic pattern. <clears throat> so committed doses. And, and then because you're going to take a committed dose, inform yourself of the medical and pharmacological chit-chat on the matter so that you can feel reassured, you know, and talk to a heart specialist. Questions like, if, if my heart is pounding, does that mean I'm having a heart attack? Uh, what is a fibrillation and how will I recognize it? Because you can have very odd feelings and not be in any danger whatsoever. You know, and your heart can pound. It's made to pound. Look at all these aerobic exercise freaks. Well, the fact that you're sitting still and this begins to happen doesn't mean that you've been shoved to death's door. It just means, you know, that everything is equalizing and coming to some kind of equilibrium and you're passing through a, a transition. These drugs do have a kind of mock barrier. In other words, a, there is a barrier somewhat like the speed of sound. Uh, it's a pharmacological and physiological barrier. So you take the compound, the plant, whatever it is. Nothing happens for 40 minutes or so except false starts and little things and you have to go pee and then you come back and you sit down. And then it begins to come on and it's like it can have many manifestations but it can be chills, tremoring, knotted stomach, nausea, uh, just restlessness, so forth and so on. This is what I call, taking a page from the engineering book, Q. Q in engineering circles is vibration in a physical system. And you may even, when they, when they launch the space shuttle, if you listen to the radio chit-chat, they will say, uh, approaching max Q, and then they'll say, Max Q, Mark, and then they're through that. What that means is that as the system approaches a transition, it begins to shake. It begins to shake as though it's going to shake to pieces. And the Q forces are building on all the air, air uh, surfaces, the airframe. Then you break through that, Q falls to zero, and you're in the cool, you know, main engine cutoff. You are now in orbit. All vibration has ceased. Noise has ceased. You are in orbit. You are weightless. You are there. It's different. Now you shut down all these switches related to the launch procedure and begin to set a course through a different kind of medium, a medium characterized by smoothness, stillness, and, uh, and that sort of thing. LSD, I, I don't see anything wrong with the uh, 
300, 400 micrograms as an initial dose. I don't see any point in running up into the 1500 to 2000 gamma range because in my experience what happens is at higher doses there's simply a, a, an area where you can't remember what happened and the higher the dose the longer that period of time but since you can't remember anything about it why you know it should be shortened DMT 70 milligrams uh, vaporized in a glass pipe and uh, and 70 milligrams yeah. I just think that LSD, uh, I have done large doses of LSD at times, and it's always seemed to me that it's very difficult to process all the stimuli coming in. The biocomputer just, at one point, for me at least, uh, one time I did uh, like 4,000 months ago, and uh, the biocomputer shut down for a while. I just, I just, I, like you said, I forgot exactly. Yeah, it's I, I the overload, mm -hmm. and it, it just shunts it past you. Um, what do we need to cover here? Uh, DMT, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, which uh, you know, uh, I think probably you all know, 125, 150 milligrams. Uh, and because I tell you these doses doesn't necessarily mean I approve of all these things. I'm just saying if you take them, these are the doses. Ketamine, people take small amounts. Again, uh, usually after attaining some amount of proficiency with it I haven't I've only done it four or five times and always fairly large doses 130 150 interesting compound but uh, contraindicated because of physiological problems uh, depresses the immune system possibility of epileptic kindling certainly uh, if you were to vomit in that state, you might well strangle because you wouldn't be able to clear your throat. Uh, I don't like the, what I have against ketamine. Also, is uh, you have to shoot it. You know, as I was driving home last night, I was listening to some program, and and they were talking about intravenous drugs, and I thought, how interesting. That's a distinction you don't hear made very often. They were saying, we should legalize all drugs except intravenous drugs. Well, so that's, of course, morphine, uh, cocaine, heroin, ketamine, steroids, I suppose, uh, like that. That's an interesting distinction, operationally. Uh, yeah. You can't you? <laughs> you can, but I would... Um, I've heard that it's dangerous because... Yeah, it's IM. It's IM. When they give it as an anesthetic, they give it 600 milligrams IV push, which must be just like being struck from behind by a freight train. I'm, I'm sure you never know what hits you. I mean, imagine a, a, an exploratory dose is uh, 100, let's say, IM. They're talking about IV directly into the vein, 600 push. That means pressure on the on the feeder, so it's just like a high f pressure uh, filling of your gas tank. You would never know what hit you. Yeah, although now they've pulled it from general surgery, even veterinary surgery, because uh, it seems to depress the immune system. And the worst thing you could do is do surgery on somebody and then put them into a surgical recovery ward with an immune a depressed immune system. 
so uh, so that is kind of out. Um, I must say about ketamine, it did something to me that uh, nothing else has ever done, which is I, be, I was it, it erodes the observer in a way that the indoles don't. On ketamine, you can get so out there that it is a major intellectual breakthrough to realize that you're on a drug. In other words, there's this situation and it seems like it's always been there and it always will be there and you can't remember who you are or what you are or where you are and this situation continues and there's something about it but you can't quite put your finger on it and there's never been anything else there'll never be anything else and then suddenly comes this tiny thought you're on a drug Oh, right. <laughs> I remember now. You're, that's it. That's it. I'm a human being. I took a drug. I'm a human being, and I took a drug, and that's what this is. This is a trip. Right. That's it. This is a trip. I'm on a trip. Now I've got it. Now I'm in... Well, what this means is you're now coming down. The, the, the trip is now over with because you have... Yeah. I have this experience being so lost that it was a victory to realize... No, not a victory, but I was stuck in that state where there was only eternity. There was no trace back to any family member, to anything. I just knew that this person which was sitting was a familiar person. From somewhere, I knew this person. And I said, come with that. And it was yourself. No, there was none. <laughs> My sitter was there. Oh, I see. I we were sitting in the next room. But I was for hours just totally... In, you know, no connection to anything which was connected to my personality or to life. Was that a five gram dose? Yes. Uh huh. Well, I think probably, I, I would imagine that this is. It was amazing, it was wonderful to be there. You know, to see that everything is just made up our life and to see how this world is made up. And, you know, why do we have architectures and colleagues and all this? It's just incredible to think about that. <coughs> Yes, maybe this is the white light. Maybe this is what these early LSD people were so enamored of, was getting so far into it that you don't even know you're into it because you can't remember where you started from. Uh, it sort of is not what I'm shooting for because I always want to bring stuff back. See, my conviction is... Oh, no, I had my conviction reversed. But my belief is <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> My belief is that this stuff is important for all of us, that, that we're in some kind of lower dimensional slice and what you see in the psychedelic experience actually has historical implications. And I find this sort of paradoxical because I'm the person who draws everybody's attention to the fact that people have been doing this for 50,000 years. So in a way, that sounds like I'm saying it's not a big deal. It's part of the human heritage. Certain people have always known about this. Yeah? Where does it start, though? Like that point between where there's nothing and then all of a sudden, you know, coming back in, the observer kicks in. That's the big issue in my life is, like, where did the observer come from? Is it an evolutionary thing? Like animals never have it when they fade into the white light? You know, 
I mean, do you have anything to say about that little place in between way in there? Well, I think it begins with the, with self-reflection. In other words, the question, what's happening? I don't think animals ever ask that question. For animals, what's happening is what's happening. But we are capable of, of creating a state of distance and, and posing the question, what is happening? And at that point in the trip, it means you're making your way back to the modality that you left from. You're drawing away from the translinguistic place. And it truly is translinguistic. Nothing can be taken out of it. But at the interface of the, of the sayable and the unsayable is the novel, the new, the never-before-seen-said-or-done. And that's what I think it's important to try and bring out ideas. Because I think we are the animals that bring back ideas. Somehow our hunting and gathering adaptation then set us loose in our own minds. And, you know, somebody came back and said, let's throw a chunk of this meat in the fire and see what happens. It's this see what happens attitude. So then suddenly they discovered, well, meat burned in fires is easier to digest and taste better. And by this means, this let's see what happens approach to things, the ideas come in the mental dimension. The let's see what happens translates those of them that can be translated into three-dimensional space. Let's plant this plant. Let's slaughter this animal. Let's try sex this way. Let's go over that hill this year instead of that hill. And what has come out of this is the entire legacy of our cultural heritage as a global civilization. But all of these ideas began in the mind. And what are ideas? Well, this is the central question of Platonic philosophy. And what are we that we seem to uh, separate the doable from the undoable in the realm of ideas? And then anything that can be done we do. It doesn't matter how perverse, how painful, how destructive, how grandiose, how wonderful, how sublime. If it can be done, we do it. And then, in this three-dimensional domain of space and time, these ideas uh, compete with each other like organisms. And an ecology of mind evolves. That's really what culture is. It's the ecology that mind has created for itself in the same way that bees create a beehive and then the beehive is the cultural context of beeness. We have created civilization through language and then civilization has been, become the context for humanness and yet we always seek uh, to transcend it and go beyond it. Now, I don't know whether this is something innate in us or whether it is um, somehow programmed in from the planet at different levels. Because it's very interesting, you know, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but there are leafcutter ants in the tropics. I mean, they're a major part of life in the tropics. And they march in columns through the jungle, and they can swarm up a tree 
and take all the leaf material off a large jungle tree in a matter of hours. And what they do with these leaves is they return sometimes great distances with these, each one carrying like a little banner, a chunk of leaf. And they go down into their nests and they chew it up and they stick it on the walls surface or some of them go back to the surface and they gather spores on their antenna and then they go back down into the anthill and they and they inject or inoculate the chewed plant material with these spores well naturally this chewed plant material is pretty organic and funky so it begins to grow all kinds of things molds, mildews, bacteria, so forth and so on. And what the ants do is they farm this and weed out all these bad bacteria and small micro-fungi and organisms and only cultivate this one fungus which then converts the plant material into a usable sugar. So what this is, is it's a symbiotic relationship between the fungi and the ant. And the ant is getting an enriched food out of this, and what the fungi is getting is a cultivated situation where all its competitor organisms are carefully kept away and weeded out. Well. Uh, this is precisely, in my model, uh, what is happening with the human species at a more complex level. In other words, by domesticating cattle, we have set up an environment that is very favorable to the uh, growth and appearance of what would other be, otherwise be a very rare deep forest mushroom. But because we domesticate cattle and clear land so to do, we have created a huge circumtropical global environment in which these mushrooms can reside. What they make for us is not sugar, but ideas. You know, something we need the way ants need sugar. And uh, these ideas take all kinds of forms, and then we refine them. And uh, you see, I don't, I, I'm not sure if I made the point strongly enough in the Friday night lecture. I really believe that uh, human populations that do not have contact with the psychedelic tremendum are neurotic because they are male ego dominated. Yeah, big ego. The reason I call it male ego is because women, by virtue of physiology, basically, have are, are pretty unavoidably welded to the nitty-gritty because they give birth, they carry children to term, and those two things which are biologically dictated. There is also the cultural dictate that women are usually involved in preparing and burying the dead in traditional societies. So women know how weird it is 
I mean, surely to give birth must give you a perspective that anybody who's never done it just cannot hope to have. So uh, the male ego is it floats on this myth of separateness that no woman has the luxury of entertaining because birth, pregnancy, menstruation, care for the sick, care for the dying, uh, these are boundary-dissolving activities that keep women close to the nitty-gritty. Uh, the male organism can go off into its own private Idaho, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> often what child-rearing means is the simple act of impregnation. And then that's the contribution, in many cases, in primitive and modern societies. Death is something the women take care of. Birth, in primitive societies, men are never present. Uh, and women do it alone or with other women, so forth and so on. So, uh, in, in these Neolithic and, and, uh, and uh, Paleolithic societies, this tendency of the ego to tumorize and grow in, in individuals was kept down by a chemical regulator, which was the psychedelic experience. It was part of the food chain and it suppressed ego, much in the way that drugs are given in prisons to suppress libido, because it makes it's hard to manage uh, highly libidinous people in an institutionalized situation, especially when it's only one sex is involved. So this natural regulation of the human species by regulating this psychic function called ego was disrupted uh, with the invention of agriculture. And the hunting-gathering society, with its deep involvement in uh, uh, ecstasy, which and it was these weekly or bi-weekly psychedelic orgy ecstasy picnics that people used to have, that gave way. And Weston Labar makes the point that ecstasy is not at a premium in agricultural societies because it's disruptive. That what is at a premium in agricultural societies is the ability to get up before dawn and pick up your tools and go to the fields and work like a dog. And uh, if people have been up all night before dancing and tripping, and they can't do that. And so the, the, psychedelic, uh, the psychedelic gods are replaced by cereals, corn, wheat, rye. And of course, you know, at a very early strata, in the Neolithic, you do get the emergence. I mean, Fraser is full of talk about the great corn god and Tammuz and all this. So uh, we are living the legacy of millennia of cultural neurosis in Western civilization by virtue of the fact of the untreated growth of the cancerous 
ego. And we know this. It's simply that we assume there is no cure. We assume that it's natural to have ego and that it's somehow unnatural to suppress it. But wherever you have a break, an outbreak of psychedelic use in a high-tech society, then you see refeminized, hang-loose, communal, caring values, well, values, uh, come into prominence within the community. You had, somebody had their hand. Yeah. One is, have you seen a, a difference in the way men and women react to psychedelics, given the fact that maybe perhaps men embody a stronger male ego than women on balance? And then my other question is, has to do with the, the role of kind of the observer ego when you're doing drugs, whether it's marijuana or alcohol or, or especially uh, psychedelics. So I was just sitting here thinking that the reason that I don't take anything stronger than marijuana is that, you know, as your experience, I mean, I lose myself even in a, a strong hit of marijuana. I lose my ego completely. And, and I mean, I guess that's just a different form of the experience if I don't get really fearful and paranoid. But it's easy to get scared when that sense of observer ego just goes. Because then I don't remember that I'm on a drug trip. And then it seems timeless and eternal. And then I come down later, as you were saying, you know, the backside of the high, I go, oh, yes, I just took some marijuana two hours ago. Everything's fine. I'll recover tomorrow. And... Um, and so, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about that and what people can do who maybe don't have a strong ego structure, whatever it takes to do these, these powerful drugs. But I don't think I would be able to handle Well, that. if you don't have a strong ego structure, chances are you're not a heavy-duty male dominator because they're sort of antithetical. Uh, I, I think probably um, cannabis was a major ego dissolver and that all these things have been used this way. And if that works for you, that's fine. I didn't take psychedelics to lose my ego, although people said that that would happen. I never quite understood what was meant, but looking at it as a mass phenomenon, where you're not talking about an individual tripper, but tens of thousands of people, inevitably this feminizing of values uh, seems to take place. What was your first thing? Do men and women experience oh, psychedelics yeah. differently? I don't know if they experience them differently. <coughs> I've never quantitatively uh, looked into this, but my impression is that it's less uh, of a surprise to women and that they feel less of a need to do it. I, particularly, I think this is true of cannabis. I think I'll bet that two-thirds of cannabis use is male use. And why is this? I'm not sure. Maybe women have too much work to do, too many obligations. I mean, the old man can sit and smoke dope, but uh, somebody has to do the shopping and get the kids to school and pick them up and keep the insurance paid and... Uh, all that, but uh, uh, women, I think, have a different relationship to it. M women are often shamans, and in fact, the best shamans in many cultures, if you ask the people in the culture, are usually felt to be women. Women are connected up to all of this stuff. 
drug taking may not be a, a, a uh, male enterprise, but history is a male enterprise. I don't think we would have ever gotten into it if it had been up to women. In a way, the women outsmarted themselves because they had uh, the uh, not control in the conscious sense, but they were sitting in the front of the canoe when they and then they invented agriculture, and that undercut their own position because the vast repository of plant knowledge that had been the secret knowledge of women, it no longer really mattered as long as you knew how to grow corn and a couple, and a couple of other things. The vast uh, um, encyclopedic data on wild plants became less important and it becomes more labor-intensive. And men, because they had evolved toward being efficient hunters, probably did have a physical edge on women in terms of stamina uh, and an ability to you know, work with a hoe for eight or nine hours a day. Because what the women did when they were in their you know, in the prime cultural situation was they, they gathered, they looked at stuff, and talked about it with each other. And this was this domain in which language then arose. And gathering is not hard work. It's just steady work. And it's lots of fun if you do it with your friends. And, uh, you know, the, the cliched notion about Aboriginal peoples is the women chatter. This phrase, the chattering of women in primitive situations. It really is true, I think, that women avail themselves of language much more than men uh, in, the, in these preliterate situations. The men are hunters and they act like hunters. They're stoic. They hold it all in, uh, literally. I mean, the larger bladder size of men is thought to be related to the hunting adaptation and so forth. So the men are stoic, they're holding it in. The women are information freaks. It all rides for them on information. Where do you find it? How do you cook it? What does it look like? Is it poisonous? What time of year is best? What soil is best? What do you combine it with? Uh, is it good all year round? What do the flowers look like? What does the fruit look like? So for, data, information, how could you ever... Uh, how could you ever understand the use and uh, location of 600 plants or more unless you had a tremendously evolved uh, vocabulary for this kind of thing? Yeah. Um, a couple of practical questions. One, the physical weakness that follows substances like psilocybin, is there any way to prevent that? Well, um, the physical weakness, these things take energy. I mean, obviously during the trip, energy is being sucked into the moment. I mean, a trip is hard work, even if you're just sitting still. So then there's going to be an energy debt. One way of assessing the toxicity of a, of a drug, there, I've, in the course of this weekend, I've named several ways 
and uh, they all need to be used together. But one way of assessing the toxicity of a drug is how do you feel the next day? Um, psilocybin, what I do when I take mushrooms is uh, I usually take them about nine at night. By one or two in the morning, it's usually past. And then I eat before I sleep so that I don't wake up in the morning with a protein debt. And that's very important. If you will eat before you sleep after a trip, it won't be nearly so hard to come down. Uh, MDMA, one of the things that's really appalling to me about it is here it is, this pretty minor psychoactive, and my God, the day after is tough sledding. I mean, for a hangover like that, you should at least have seen God, you know. <laughs> now, LSD, uh, uh, we said it, if you drink a lot of water, that cuts the thing. Yeah, vitamins are never a bad idea at any point in these things. Uh, LSD, which I said yesterday, was so effective at low doses that on that scale it appeared very non-invasive. I feel terrible after taking LSD. I mean, it takes me 24 hours to put it back together. The, it, the interesting exceptions to this and the causes, you know, it always seems to cut my way in terms of favoring the ones I think are most interesting. DMT is again the anomaly here. DMT is the most powerful hallucinogen there is. It, it, if it gets stronger than that, I don't want to know about it. And 15 minutes after you do it, you feel as though you had never done a drug. You, feel, you are down 100% mentally, physically, spiritually. It just returns you to the baseline. Uh, ayahuasca goes DMT one better, and ayahuasca is the only one that I know of that does this. And I maintain the reason these things behave this way is because they are so similar to brain chemistry, ordinary brain chemistry. Ayahuasca you actually come out slightly higher than you went in and it isn't lost, you know? I mean, you feel great the day after an ayahuasca trip, usually. I mean, it depends. If it's your first trip and you spent eight hours vomiting, you're probably not going to feel so good. But if you had, uh, if you were able, if it was an ordinary uh, ayahuasca trip, then you're going to feel much better the day after than you did going in. More connected, more alert, more energy. Well, this must have something to do with the fact that the constituents of ayahuasca, harmine, harmaline, DMT, all occur in the human brain. And DMT, same thing. Now, why this doesn't happen with psilocybin, I don't know. Psilocybin doesn't occur in the brain, but it is a very, very uh, close relative. I think DMT is absolutely fascinating from every point of view. Why is it so benign? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so short-acting? 
why is it so hard to get any? <laughs> That's the $64 question. Believe me, every, every book on drugs that you will pick up will say it's easily made. You know, people are making, they ask you to believe that people are making it in their kitchens all around you. Well, I don't know. Uh, a recipe? Uh, no, not five, but DMT, NN DMT. It, uh, uh, I've seen it botched many times. The literature doesn't tell you that. I mean, uh, botched, ruined. Uh, if somebody comes to you with a grainy, dark brown syrup, Forget it. You know, that is not what it looks like. That means they swept the floor after they dropped the retort or something. Uh, what it looks like is it looks like uh, orange mothballs. It looks like a crystalline, waxy, orange to pale rose to yellow kind of substance and it's very aromatic and if someone shows you a liquid or a stuff which looks like brown sugar or you know some mess we were appalled we got samples of uh, underground DMT and ran uh, high pressure liquid gas chromatography on them it looked like it literally looked like the guy swept the floor and these people had actually done it I mean, I wouldn't have given it to a rat, much less a human being. The notion of someone actually taking that stuff was just hair-raising. What you should have is a very, very steep spike at 620 nanometers. And what we got looked like the Himalayas, you know, is running around all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, there has been DMT around, which was shootable DMT, which is the hydrochloride. And, and uh, since I don't shoot things, I didn't pursue it. Although what people tell me, and this is interesting and something to also something to bear in mind, is shooting uh, is not as effective as smoking. Uh, people think that shooting a drug is the most effective way because you see it all go into your body or something, I don't know. But uh, if you shoot DMT, it takes about five minutes to come on and it lasts about 45 minutes. That's why if you read in the literature what, how long does DMT last, it will always say 45 minutes. But if you smoke it, the peak experience lasts 400 seconds, something like that. I mean, it, it's extreme. That's why it's so astonishing, because it is so intense, and the onset is so sudden that it's more like something has happened to you rather than that you've taken a drug. In other words, it's... Uh, and sometimes people come out of it saying, you know, what happened? Have we done it yet? Or was there an earthquake and the roof fell on me just as we were about to do it? It has the quality of an event rather than an experience. And also it has the quality of an event because it does not touch 
the core observer. You are not changed. What's changed is the, the sensory input is changed. You are still who you are. You don't think you're God. You don't feel bad about yourself. You are exactly who you were before you did it with the same set of concerns. But you have been whisked into an alien dimension, one you never had imagined existed or could have a moment before have conceived of. And suddenly it's 100% in place, 360 degrees around you. And then, you know, three minutes, four minutes, ten minutes later, all, you're raving to your friends and it's as far away as that trip to Majorca four years ago, you know. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I guess I should point this out, uh, although I'm sure you probably already figured it out. But when Terence was talking about ecstasy uh, near the end of this talk, he was talking about the experience of ecstasy and uh, wasn't using the street name for MDMA, which was uh, just uh, making its way into the street back then. And uh, like me, it may have taken you a sentence or two to grok the fact that it wasn't a drug he was talking about. Or uh, I guess more likely I'm the only one who was uh, confused at first. Also, uh, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago too, uh, but when Terence went off on that long description of the ayahuasca visions he had when he voiced the word Baroque, well, I've never experienced anything even close to what he was describing. And uh, I'm not the only one that I know of who doesn't get these spectacular visions that uh, Terence speaks about. So uh, should you ever have the opportunity to experience the vine for yourself, uh, I don't want you to be disappointed if you don't see castles in the sky. But, uh, hey, even without the visions, it's uh, very worthwhile and, I should say, a very spectacular experience. You know, over the past few years, we've heard Terrence go on over and over about the spectacular visions he seems to uh, have on almost every substance. And uh, thinking of that brought back to mind some of the uh, stories about Nikolai Tesla that uh, were told where he was known to be able to actually see whatever it was that he was thinking about when he was uh, working on a new invention. Uh, apparently his optic system and his brain were wired a little differently from uh, most people. Well, maybe, uh, maybe Terence was the Tesla of psychedelics. And if so, uh, hey, it's not bad company for him to be in. Well, I've got to uh, get out of here a little early today because, uh, as I said, I'm beginning to get ready for Burning Man, and uh, <laughs> that's a, a bigger job than I remembered it being uh, before I committed to return to the playa again this year. But uh, that does remind me that Bruce Damer is looking for a couple of tickets. So if you already have your Burning Man ticket, but uh, circumstances have forced you to cancel and you want to sell your ticket, well, uh, please let me know. And uh, you can just send an email to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. Uh, and that's how you can reach me uh, anytime, in fact. Uh, hopefully it'll get through the spam filters. Now, before I go, uh, I want to do something that you don't hear very often here in the salon. And uh, that is to point out the plight of someone who is the victim of the U.S. government's war on people who are not satisfied with the status quo. So today I want to mention the case of Eddie Lepp, which uh, many of our fellow saloners already know about, I'm sure. 
First of all, and uh, this probably doesn't mean much to anyone under 30, but Eddie is a fellow Vietnam vet. And I'm here to tell you that it hasn't always been easy on many of the women and men who returned from that war to a country that had disowned them. I can still remember uh, back in the 70s when I went to a vet support group meeting one night and discovered that the people there no longer even uh, thought of themselves as Americans. Most of them said, I'm not an American, I'm a Vietnam vet. As I said, uh, unless you were there, this probably doesn't mean much to you, but I'm mentioning it here to give you a little idea of the mindset some of us have, and uh, whether Eddie feels this way, uh, I don't know, but uh, that was the general vibe that was in the air when we returned from our tour of duty. And by the way, uh, compared to the women and men in the armed forces today, uh, I think we probably had it easy because it was rare to uh, have a second tour of duty in a war zone unless uh, you volunteered. But today, those poor people are being sent back again and again. Frankly, I don't know how they do it without going completely bonkers. But getting back to Eddie, I'd uh, like to read a little from his website that uh, tells his story in kind of a nutshell. And it goes... Reverend Charles Eddie Lepp of the Multi-Denominational Ministry of Cannabis and Rastafari was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison on May 18, 2009 for growing more than 1,000 marijuana plants. Eddie Lepp had notified the governor, the attorney general, the board of supervisors of Lake County, the Lake County district attorney, and the local sheriff, all by certified mail, that he was growing the sacred herb for medicinal and spiritual use by the members of his ministry. He was denied a religious defense even after the judge ruled that he met all the standards necessary to allow this. Reverend Lepp protected all the members of his church and was the only one charged. Eddie Lepp was forbidden from entering any real sort of defense to the charges since federal courts do not allow testimony regarding California's medical use law. After four years of litigation, his trial was reduced to two very short days of testimony due to restrictions placed by the uncaring and insensitive Judge Marilyn Hall Patel. The whole trial was over in less than one week. By the way, uh, I added the uncaring and insensitive part, and uh, that is only how I characterize this horrible judge and polite company. I'll let you imagine the language I use in my head when I think of this inhuman beast. Anyway, the uh, text on Eddie's website goes on. To know that this gentleman is going to prison for a decade at age 57 makes me physically ill. This religious man who so bravely helped so many sick and dying and sense-threatened Californians find relief through the medicine grown on his land is going to spend more time in prison than the average rapist, manslaughterer, and child molester because our country has not yet overcome its prudish impulse to punish people for moral reasons. And uh, if you'd like to help Eddie, uh, what I just read is part of a letter to Mr. Obama that's on Eddie's website, and you can send your copy of it to the White House in an attempt to obtain a pardon for Eddie so that uh, he doesn't have to die in prison. Right now, he's probably thinking that it would have been more convenient for the United States of America if he'd been killed in Vietnam while he was serving this ungrateful nation. Then at least they wouldn't have to pay the expense of keeping him in a cage for the rest of his life. 
Okay, uh, I better get off my soapbox. You can see why I don't do this very often. But uh, what all this is leading up to is uh, a nice, kind, gentle song that I'd like to play for you as I end today's podcast. It was uh, written and performed by fellow saloner and fellow podcaster Jesse Miller. And I'll uh, put a link to Jesse's podcast along with the program notes uh, with this podcast. And and also I want to say that even if I didn't know the story of Eddie Lepp, uh, I'd listen to this song some more because, uh, as you know, I was in college from 1960 through 1964, which was uh, near the height of Bob Dylan's folk career. And uh, protest songs were really coming in then, and uh, this song by Jesse uh, really takes me back to those uh, exciting times in college. Of course, uh, that was before I did my Fuck You, I Quit dance. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry about that. That was uh, just a cheap way of putting in a plug for my new novel, The Genesis Generation, which you can download in audiobook format at www.genesisgeneration.us, or us. Well, that should do it for now, and uh, so I'll close today's podcast again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the uh, Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial ShareLite 3.0 license. And if you uh, have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find through psychedelicsalon.org. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.
Free Eddie, free Eddie, free Eddie, love.